you'd open your Bibles to 1 Peter, our text this morning will be coming from 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 11. Um, Before we get into the content of the passage, allow me to first frame the context of this passage. Uh, Prior to A.D. 64, the majority of persecution that was directed towards Christians came from zealous Jews who rejected Jesus Christ as their Lord, as their Savior, as the Messiah. But in A.D. 64, while Nero was emperor in Rome, there was a massive fire that burned for several days. And of the 14 districts in the city of Rome, 10 were severely burned by this fire. Nero was initially blamed by the Roman people for the start of these fires. So he sought out a scapegoat to place the blame so that he could avoid the heat. Um, He turned to the Christians, And presumably by means of torture, he was able to coerce a false confession from a group of Christian merchants. And this gave not only Nero, but all of the people, all of the citizens of Rome, a license to persecute Christians. Uh, Peter was in Rome at the time, as was Paul, and Peter pins the book of 1 Peter to the churches of Asia Minor to prepare them to stand firm in the face of imminent upcoming persecution. The book of 1 Peter is comprised of five chapters. The fifth and final chapter begins with the words, So I exhort the elders among you. But prior to this specific exhortation, the entirety of the book addresses the everyday Christian, much like yourselves. It imparts to us such practical wisdom and advice on how to live a triumphant Christian life in a world that is hostile to Christians. In chapter 1, we see praises toward God for causing those who Peter is writing to to be born again to an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance, namely the salvation of their souls that's seen in verse 9 of chapter 1. Simultaneously in chapter 1, he warns his readers not to be re-enslaved or remarried, rejoined to their former fleshly patterns and passions. And he instructs them to purify their souls through obedience to the everlasting word of God, which will not wither away. In chapter 2, Peter reminds us here is that they are all living stones being specifically placed and methodically assembled on Christ's foundation to build God's house. Then he calls for submission to authority, specifically submission to government and employers, masters in their vernacular, but the best way we can understand that is the employee-to-employer relationship in our modern context. And he's instructing them, even as they are being persecuted, so that by doing good, they may silence those who are foolish. 
We see in chapter 3 a depiction and purpose of a healthy submission within the household, within the family. And he goes on to describe honorable living among other believers amidst suffering. And then as we get to chapter 4, the purpose of suffering for righteousness' sake is revealed to us. And he journeys through and gets to how the Christian ought to live in the midst of persecution and suffering. So here we find ourselves in the middle of chapter 4, where we are recipients of three directives that will help you to live a triumphant Christian life. The title of this message is Triumphant Christian Living. Directive number one is for us to be alert and prayerful for communion with God. But before we enter into the content of that directive, let us read our text. 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 11. So reads the word of God. For this is why the gospel was... I'm beginning in verse 6, excuse me. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it or employ it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So immediately, immediately at the outset, we see the phrase, the end of all things is at hand, provoking us to urgency. But urgency in what regards? The Greek term for the end of all things is at hand is employed here not referring to utter destruction and the sense of all things and existence coming to some permanent end. Instead, it speaks of the consummation of all things, an accomplishment of things. It is an announcement that the culmination of God's sovereign plan of salvation is within reach. It could very well be understood also as the renewal of all things is at hand. Thomas Schreiner comments, the reason the end is near is that the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ have inaugurated these last days. These words set the tone for the remainder of the passage. Once again, it provokes us to urgency. It is the motivation behind the directives that he gives for triumphant Christian living. So before anything else, the believer is called to live with a heightened anticipation 
and expectancy of the return of Christ. Frequently, when this Greek term is used, it is deployed as a stimulus to provoke one to a specific action. We see in Matthew 3, 2, the same term is used, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, in the same way that we see the end of all things is at hand. So we're being provoked to some sort of action. Hebrews 10.25 also says, not neglecting or forsaking to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near, which is the same Greek term, the day drawing near, as is at hand. Verse 7 of 1 Peter is no different. different. There is a call to action that is to be motivated by the urgent expectation of the return of Christ. And this call to action begins at the second part of verse 7. The therefore that is stated there, the end of all things is at hand, therefore, immediately is followed by the call to have self-control and to have sobriety of mind. These two terms, let's look at them individually and independently first, to be self-controlled. It's a common term, but what does it truly mean? The idea is to be reasonable in your judgment and sensible in your conduct. In other words, my body is not in control of me, but I am in control of my body. Immediately after, we hear the call to sobriety of mind which is a militaristic term. It means to be alert, vigilant, to have a singular focus, not to be detracted by the impulses of the flesh. The term is also used in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, if you turn two pages back. The text reads, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here we have a depiction of one casting off all that distracts from the race set before us, the race of holiness that we are called to run. So like a frontiersman, we are to travel light. Like an athlete, we are to be found in our competitive uniform. Like a soldier, We should only pack that which is of utmost importance, that which is essential. We must ask ourselves, what is deserving of the limited real estate that is in our mind before we sell off our time to give room for such things? Scripture also tells us to put away childish things. There comes a time where we must purge ourselves of our fleshly desires and press on towards the goal of the upward call that is found in Christ Jesus. So the end of all things is at hand. We're being called to self-control from that motivation. We're being called to the sobriety of mind from that same motivation But what is the purpose? What is the aim of this sobriety of mind that leads to holy conduct or self-control? 
Well, the aim that we see here is for the sake of your prayers. And one might ask, what does being sober-minded and self-controlled have to do with the sake of my prayers? I understand that it has to do with my conduct and how I walk and my orthopraxy and how I live out my life in a godly manner, but what does it have to do with my private communion with God? 1 Peter 3.12 reads, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Further evidence of this same point is found in Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. The psalmist writes there, Who shall ascend the hill of God? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. So you see, our actions that are derived from our thoughts can either hinder or propel us into holy communion with God. And we see within this context that it is so important, it is of utmost importance that our communion with God not be hindered as we see the end of all things within reach, as we see the return of Christ as imminent. All the more we are to press on for holy communion with Christ, unceasing, uninhibited communion with Christ. How easy can it be for all of us at times to lose focus when we think of the term sobriety of mind, to have a singular focus, never to lose sight of the end of the Christian life, and from that place that be the motivation with which we live? How easy is it, though, with the common distractions of our comfortable modern lives, with the newest Netflix show that comes out, or even more important matters, especially for many of you who are in your college years, thinking of Where will I go next? What career path will I embark on? How can I serve God well? Even thinking of that in an introspective way. But what the text is telling us here is to examine our lives only so we may rid ourselves of our former passions, of our fleshly desires, that we may put on the new man and walk in holy communion with Christ, such a communion that is unhindered. So we must be alert and watchful at all times so that as the world around us sinks deeper into a valley of selfishness, chaos, and spiritual lethargy, spiritual ambiguity, if you will, we are able to maintain our standard of holy conduct, and thus maintain a pure connection with Christ. One that will not shrink back in shame at his coming. So now that we understand that we must have a clear conscience, we press on to directive number two which is for us to have an earnest love for the sake of covering sins. 
and earnest love for the sake of covering sins. Verse 8 reads, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So before we saw, before anything else, the end of all things is at hand. That was the first point that we received in this text. But now we're hearing not only before anything else, but above anything else, of utmost importance. We must keep loving one another. Such a simple four-letter word. Unfortunately, a four-letter word that our world has perverted, distorted, cheapened. But biblical love, make no mistake about it, is a source of tremendous power. Tremendous power. When the topic of love is being addressed, it is always helpful to have 1 Corinthians 13 fresh in your mind. Would you turn there with me? First Corinthians 13, just after describing the gifts given to the church, Paul describes the spirit in which the gifts are to be employed. And that spirit is love, an environment of love. And as we see here in verses 4, beginning in verse 4, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. Simply put, love could be described as selfless service that is in accordance with the truth for the sake of another, for the benefit of another. In this context as well, in 1 Peter chapter 1, 22 through 23, the, the same adverb that is employed in 1 Peter 4, verse 8, to describe love, the, the word is earnestly. The descriptor, the modifier of the love that we are to have is, is earnestly, or some translators say fervently. This is a deep, sincere, genuine love. This is not a lip service love. This is not a love that is of sentiment only. This is a love of action. This is a love of self-sacrifice. This is a love that takes after the love that is modeled by our Savior, Jesus Christ. And what we're told about this love is that it is effective for covering a multitude of sins. It is effective for covering a multitude of sins. It is very similar and reminiscent of Proverbs 10.12. Proverbs 10.12 reads, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. 
And when we come back to the book of 1 Peter, we see in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another, act on your love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. This word earnestly or fervently could also be understood of a stretching, of great exertion, of grit within the love, reminiscent of an athlete straining. It is a love that evokes effort, perspiration. Again, it's a love that is described in 1 Corinthians 13 as a love that endures all things. So this earnest love stares sin in the face. It doesn't just merely overlook it. It stares sin in the face. It acknowledges it for what it is. But rather than growing in resentment and bitterness, which gives way to disunity, it seeks, if at all possible, to then overlook the sins to reconcile it within your own spirit. To not be one to nitpick every small offense because in loving relationships within the church, loving relationships within the family, loving relationships within friendships or workplace, co-worker relationships, there will be small offenses. There will be infractions on a day-to-day basis. But it is the call of the Christian to respond in love. It is the call of the Christian not to grow bitter, not to be thin with patience, not to seek one's own desire in matters of preference. To be clear, there is a time to confront, there is a time to confront sin, to seek that restoration through communication. However, the mature Christian is one who is able at times not to grumble about small preferential things or offenses where we feel as though someone has slighted us. Again, the context of this entire book is placed in a society where Christians are fiercely being persecuted, tirelessly suffering. And we saw in chapter 2 that Peter is still calling them to submit to the authority above them, the authority that instructs them, not at the expense of God's word, but so that love may persevere so that love may be seen, so that the gentle nature of the Christian may win some over, so that the gentle Christian of the Christian may restore a fellow Christian, as opposed to invoking further hostility. So again, in in essence, what we're being instructed here to do is not turn a blind eye to sin or conceal sin, but to cover the debt of sin. 
to follow the lead of Christ's love that covers the debt of our sin. As we press on here, a tremendous example of this is found in 1 Corinthians 6. When when Paul is detailing divisions among believers and lawsuits among believers, believers who are pursuing legal action and seeing it inconceivable to reconcile things amongst one another, thus portraying disunity amidst non-believers. If the world is to know us by our love, we must do no such thing. In, in 1 Corinthians 6, we see in verse 5, it reads, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? That is intense. That is a strong call. It is not comfortable to suffer wrong. It is not comfortable to be defrauded. In the face of injustice, we cry out, our spirits groan. But do we see it within our own hands that we must take action at all times, that we must be judge, jury, and executioner, that we must be the one to right every wrong, or do we have rest in the sovereign hand of God and the sovereign promise of God that he will bring and enact justice on all things? And brothers and sisters, again, going back to directive number one, There is power in prayer. We ought to seek to pray for one another. We ought to seek to pray for the restoration of our brothers and sisters on a continual basis without ceasing. James 5 tells us that the effective prayer of a righteous man is to great avail. So once again, as we're journeying through these three directives, we understand that our motivation comes from the realization that the return of our bridegroom is within reach. He has entered the world. He has inaugurated the coming of his kingdom. Inexpressible joy should be our response. This should not be fearful for the Christian. It should not be a fearful reality. But one that motivates us and encourages us to seek him all the more. To purify our actions. To remain alert. To be able to distinguish clean from unclean, holy from unholy, pure from impure in this world. The Spirit of God lives within us to make such discernments. Thus, our pleas to God will be heard. Our communion with God will not be 
infringed against. And from such a place, we can peacefully move forward loving our brothers and sisters. It is important to note also, and again, this is a fact worth belaboring because the text itself says this is to be understood as above all else. It is a supreme directive. And we see in chapter 2 of 1 Peter a distinction. Excuse me. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood. Fear God, honor the emperor. There is a depth of relation for the believer to God and thusly, to his fellow believer that differentiates from how we see others. We desire the salvation of every man or woman. We do not wish torment upon anyone. At the same time, there is a level of devotion. There is a specificity of love that is to be directed to our fellow believers. And there is a reverential fear that belongs to God, not to the powers that be. We honor everyone, and we honor the emperor or the government because they are fellow image bearers and because the government is an institution given by God. And whether they fulfill their purpose of punishing evil and rewarding good or not, We are called as Christians to live peaceable among all people, people, if at all possible. But within this, we see that there is a, a separate depth and a unique love for the brotherhood. And this is the earnest love, the sincere love, the deep love, the unfailing love, the love that endures all things that is reserved especially for those among us who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Who have placed their faith and their hope and their trust in the return of Christ, in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. If sin gives way to the kindling of a fire, what is being stated here in verse 8 is that love is the flame-retarded blanket that covers, smothers, and extinguishes it. All that we've seen in the text thus far must inform how we are to approach this third and final directive. The third directive issued to the triumphant Christian is selfless service for the glory of God. And initially there's, before, before verses 10 and 11, there's a short, if you will, 
directive that lives between loving one another from an earnest heart and service. It is the blend of the two. It calls us to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. The word hospitality literally means to love strangers or to be fond of guests. And I'll remind you that many Romans were extremely hostile to Christians at the time that this letter was written. So there were few, if any, public places for Christians to gather for worship or to just fellowship. And this necessitated the opening of homes to fellow Christians, some of whom may have been outside of your immediate circle. And moreover, Peter is commanding that this be done without grumbling. In other words, we are to eagerly and cheerfully serve one another. For if we grumble, it reveals that the spirit of our service is not clothed in love, but rather we are begrudgingly following ordinances. We are submitting to legalism, which is the understanding of Christian action or religious action without understanding the privilege of Christian identity. And if we have been born again into a family, why would we reject or turn away family members from communing with us in our homes? Or once again, in in our context, even just the fondness of strangers. There's a special connection that we feel many times when we meet new believers. There's an inexplainable connection. There's an inexplainable or an inexpressible uh, relational depth that is immediate that just does not take place when we meet others. Uh, There's common ground that transcends ethnicity, cultural background, uh, life experience, traumas, faced, traumas seen, there, there is a depth within our relationship that is held together by the eternal God and our understanding that he is true and that he has loved us at a tremendous cost. So most of you are in college, so you don't own a home, and we'll see how housing prices go soon. I pray that you may own a home. <laughs> uh, but I just think what a, what a help and a loving stewardship of resources it has been for some of our church members here at Grace to open their homes and have college students come over for Bible studies and fellowships and Numbers of 80 to hundreds in one home. This is what this text is speaking of. Sharing our material resources as if they were not our own because they truly are not our own. They have been given to us by God to steward for the sake and the betterment and the advancement of the kingdom of God. Chapter 2 of 1 Peter speaks of growing up into your salvation. And within that, we see the facets of our prayer life growing. We see 
uh, our devotions in the word growing. We see our opportunities for fellowship growing as we grow up into our salvation. These things become all the more real and all the more of a necessity for us to sustain our lives in this world. Because again, we are not citizens of this world. And that is one of the main points that Peter is making here. He refers to us as exiles in this book. This is not our home, friends. So the patterns of this world are not our patterns. The conduct of every person is not to be followed. And there's a tendency and a a danger in the media whirlwind of our modern world to have a desire to follow the example of anyone and everyone who's thrust before us as having some status of celebrity. But Peter is telling us, do no such thing. He's telling us, do not return to the former passions of your flesh. He's telling us to be clothed in love. He's telling us to be very alert and vigilant so that you do not tempt yourself because the flesh is weak. Be very alert. Be very vigilant. Be observant. Have the filter of the word to discern that which you ought to partake in and that which you ought not to partake in. How kind God has been to us to give us such special revelation that is sufficient for everything we need for life and godliness. These are the words of Peter and 2 Peter. God has equipped us with everything we need to live a godly life. So, as we follow the example of hospitality and the sharing of our material resources and the opening of our homes, sharing of a ride to church, if you will, I know it's difficult at times for some college students to make it here, but the sacrifice that is made to to do such things, in so doing, we must not do it while grumbling. May we see it as a wonderful opportunity to serve our brothers and sisters and thus glorify God to at times inconvenience ourselves. As Paul instructs the first Corinthians, uh, as Paul instructs the Corinthians in first Corinthians six to suffer wrong, to desire to do so. How countercultural is that? In verses 10 and 11, it is not the stewardship of material resources or material gifts that is spoken of, but rather spiritual gifts that God has bestowed upon his very own, that he has adorned the church with. And friends, I want us to understand 
that these spiritual gifts are a foretaste of deliverance. They are a foretaste of what is to come. They are an opportunity and action to proclaim the kingdom that is coming. As we love in deed and action, we are proclaiming that the kingdom is coming just as much as when one preaches the word of God. 1 Peter 4, verse 10 and 11 read, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Sinclair Ferguson writes, fundamental to this perspective, fundamental to this perspective are two principles. And the first I will read, it says, spiritual gifts reflect more about the grace of the giver than they reveal about the gracious condition of the recipient. There is a danger to see the giftedness of an individual and forsake the gift giver in our admiration of the gift. Each one of us who has been regenerated by God, who has been cleansed, who now can, has been enabled to walk in a holy conduct, to serve one another, knowing that our service is bringing about the glory of God, revealing the glory of God. We see that these gifts have the ability to showcase God's marvelous graciousness. And we ought to respond with gratitude first and foremost to God for such things. Verse 11 says, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. But first, it is important to note that he says, as each has received a gift. That means no one has been left out. Everyone has a gift from the Lord for the betterment of the church, for God's glory. Everyone. And when we understand the illustration that is often used in Scripture of the church as a body, there are visible parts and there are invisible parts. There are external features and there are internal organs. And it is so easy at times to think that these internal organs ought not be revered in the same manner that the external is. There's an attractiveness to the external, but there's an effectiveness to the internal. And there are individuals who have been gifted in such a way 
that they serve the church in a sort of incognito way, in an inconspicuous way. And may we have our eyes open to see the glory of God revealed in every gifting. Verse 11 says, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. This is calling us, if we have a gift of speech, and this is not just the gift of gab because you like to talk a lot, but one who truly can communicate and has been gifted by God because that is the only way that an individual can express the incomprehensibility of God to others is that they have been miraculously transformed by the Lord and a gift has been bestowed upon them for the purpose of God's glory. And those individuals are called in their speaking, not solely from a pulpit, but in their speech at all times to speak the very oracles of God. And the oracles of God refers to the logic of God, to speak from the mind of God. And the scripture tells us that we as believers have received the mind of Christ. So it is with great joy that we ought to go forth and great boldness that we ought to go forth with no fear into a world that seeks to smother out and cancel, if you will, truth as it is stated from Holy Scripture. But we are to step forward. Peter is telling those who've been adorned with such a gifting to step forward and emerge, not for their sake so that they may shine their light, but so that God's light may shine through them, illuminating his existence to others in the world so that by it some may be saved. And equally so that some within the body may be encouraged and restored, that they may be built up, that they may be convicted, that they may be spurred on to holy living, knowing that the end of all things is at hand. And then he goes forth to say, whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Gifts of action, such as administration or the ability to foster an environment for another person to feel comfortable. Whatever gifting that you have to serve others uh, in our digital age, to to the degree these gifts are not limited. They're not an exhaustive list just in speaking or in serving, but these are rather two categories, one that is verbal and one that is nonverbal. So there is no limit to what these giftings are. Again, as each has received a gift, it would be naive to believe that there were so few gifts that an expansive God could bestow upon his body. And he bestows such rich gifts in the exact time that they are needed. And in a digital age, there are giftings to some of you that did not exist then. Potentially. Examine yourself. See what God has given you a natural 
tendency to lean toward and to immerse yourself in and that which you can be effective in and do not use that gift or steward that gift or employ that gift for the sake of your own glory, for the sake of your enrichment, for the sake of your fame. Not even ultimately for the sake of the betterment of humanity, but the scriptures, as, as some secularists would say today, that our ultimate purpose is just a better and brighter tomorrow. But instead, we are to shine God's light through our giftings, pointing to the true better and brighter tomorrow, pointing to the celestial shore that awaits those who have their faith in Jesus Christ, those who would trust in him and believe that the fate that awaited him awaits us also. Not just glory, but also suffering that precedes it. So, may our gifts, once again, I will read Sinclair Ferguson's quote that is so perfectly encapsulates what is being communicated through this passage. Spiritual gifts reflect more about the grace of the giver than they reveal about the gracious condition of the recipient. Friends, may we look to Christ, may we fix our eyes on him, and may we operate in our giftings through the strength that he supplies. May we not white-knuckle it May we not ball up our fists and think that we can draw and just reach deeper within. But once again, through holy communion with God in our prayer life, by looking to Christ who loved us and whose love covered the debt of our multitude of sins, may we be spurred on to employ our giftings for God's glory and for the betterment of the church. May we serve one another as good stewards. The word steward referring to a household delegator, a modern day superintendent, one who delegates tasks. But as we understand this text, we understand that the delegation is coming from one individual to the corporate body. I'm not We're not delegating to one another, but instead we are delegating our gifting and contributing it, employing it for the corporate body of Christ so that it may be built up into a sustainable house as he sees fit. May we trust the Lord and what he has gifted us with and not seek the giftings of others simply because it may be more externally attractive. But may we be content in what God has bestowed upon us. For once again, the employment of our gift should bring about an inexpressible joy because it proclaims a foretaste of deliverance. We are a first fruits of the entirety of creation being renewed. We are a sort of first fruits of the entirety of the earth being renewed, where perfect communion with God will not be a strenuous task at all, but just a present reality 
that beholding him physically will become a present reality. And as that, dra- as that day draws near, may we be reminded in conclusion from this message that we are first to remain alert, that we are to be in control of our bodies and not allow our bodies to control us so that our prayers may not be hindered. May we secondly love one another and cover one another with such love. For it, for it has the effectiveness to cover a multitude of sins. And may we lastly look to employ the gifts that God has given us, some a verbal action and some a physical action. May we look to them, employ them for the service of our brothers and sisters and ultimately for the glory of God. For the culmination of this text reads, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. May we pray. Father, we have been reminded that through your word, we are to make every effort to live a holy life. That you have made it possible for us to come boldly before your throne of grace. You have given us such great mercy. We ask that you help us today and in the days to come to express that same loving mercy amongst one another. For you have said that the world will know us by our love for one another. And as we honor everyone, may we love the brotherhood earnestly, sincerely, and genuinely. Help us with these these things, Lord. In Christ's name we pray, amen.